can I just say it was so nice, you know, after, I mean, how long is it? I, I forgot, I like lost track of time. Pre-pandemic, it was so nice to be in this room and have the voices of people singing be loud enough to hear. And there was a moment there when I almost couldn't even hear Heather's voice because I could hear all of you. It's just this beautiful moment. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Tony. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you. I have the privilege of being on pastoral staff here at Wellspring, uh, being a part of this community. So it's good to be with you. Now, if you're a kid and want to hang out with other kids, there's a few of us still here. A lot of families are on vacation, I think, but we got a couple here. If you are a kid and want to hang out with other kids, Miss Jeannie, Miss Belinda, Miss Camelia, they are all over there. It's going to be awesome. Now, if you're stuck here with me, I'm going to have, I, I'm going to ask you to do something, and I know this is going to be annoying, but it's going to be awesome too, believe me, maybe not. But what I want you to do is turn to someone next to you, and I want you to try and figure out, or give your best guess at, what is the most repeated verse in the Bible? The Bible verse that is repeated the most in the Bible itself. Now, if there is a person, if there's a third wheel in your row that doesn't have someone, loop them in. Form a little trinity. If not, stay in a two. You got like a minute or two, so don't hog all the time. Go! All right, if you haven't switched, you should definitely switch. All right, if you have no idea what to say, just say, hi, my name's whatever. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right, I'm going to loop us back in. Does anyone want to try? Wait, what? Yeah, but you didn't give me a verse. But that might, that might be close, actually. I don't know. I was going to pick a different one. Huh? Ooh, very close, actually. You read my notes, cheater. So, uh, you know, in pop culture, often what we think of is John 3.16, right? Like, I remember growing up and... I, uh, I would watch football games, and I would see, like, someone holding a sign between the, the goalposts, and it was, like, 316, and I had never read the Bible, and I was like, that's not the score. <laughs> you know, I'd try and figure out how to get to 16 and be like, there must have been a safety, you know, <laughs> whatever. It, eventually, I read the New Testament, and I was like, oh, that's from John, John 316, which is not the most repeated verse in the Bible, by the way. The most known, most popular, right? Popular culture. Now, it actually takes place in Exodus. 
Exodus 34, this is how it reads. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. This is repeated in the Psalms, Nehemiah, Joel, Numbers, Jonah, Nahum, over 27 times uh, in the Old Testament alone. The thing that's interesting is, I think, I mean, who here is familiar with this, this verse, or at least some of these concepts, right? A lot of us. But almost always, at least in my experience, they're never contextualized in the actual story in which they're first written. And that's what I want to do today. I want to actually contextualize these verses, which are repeated throughout the Bible, into the story in which they first appear. Aaron last week talked about how Moses goes up the mountain, right? And he comes down and the people are worshiping the golden calf. All right, so we're, uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through the Old Testament. We're trying to do like a, just an overview of the Old Testament. We spent a year and a half in John. We spent some time in 1 Corinthians. Now we're in the Old Testament. We're in Exodus. And, uh, you know, God frees the people, the Hebrew people from Egypt. He begins to lead them into the wilderness. One of the first things he does is he brings them to Mount Sinai, brings Moses up to the top of the mountain. He's up there for 40 days. Who here has stayed on a mountain for 40 days? I, I don't know. I was thinking about it. That's got to be like cold, right? Like he's up there. No like break of wind, right? Probably not the most pleasant. Comes back down. And what is the first thing that happens? Right? The people of God have taken gold. They formed this calf. And the text says Moses gets super heated. He's been up there for 40 days. He's coming down with these tablets. He's like, I have them, people. He gets so mad, he takes it, and he like throws it against a wall. Well, there's no wall there, but you know what I mean. He throws it against something, and they shatter. 40 days, gone. Tablets are in pieces. The people are worshiping this golden calf. It's an absolute disaster. Fast forward to Exodus 34. It's like a redo. God says to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. (laughs) Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me at the top of the mountain. All right, Moses, let's try this again. Now, the first time I read this, I thought to myself, Okay, God says, get the tablets, meet me in the morning. Who in a span of certainly less than 24 hours is capable of finding a piece of rock and making it into tablet form? I read this and I was like, how do you do that? So I did a little research. All right, so so I was trying to imagine like I have a night Right, what do I do? I take like a sledgehammer, I go down to the rocks at the like ocean and I'm just like trying to smash them by candlelight till I get something that falls on the ground that kind of looks like a tablet, right? My guess is that's not what Moses said. It's pretty interesting actually. So the Egyptians, they built pyramids. They actually were really skilled at taking rock and making them into shapes that they wanted. 
and the Egyptians, right? What did they do? They hired slaves, hired, right, in quotes. They had slaves that did all this work. Who were those slaves? The Hebrew people. So Moses has a group of people that actually know how to work with stone. My guess is he's like, hey, can you guys help me? Now they have stone tablets. Moses is ready in the morning. He goes up. The text says, verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Moses goes up the mountain, right, after the golden calf, after the smashed tablets. And what does the text say? The cloud is there, right? The cloud is the visible presence of God that leads the Israelites out of Egypt, leads them into the wilderness. God's presence is still with the people, even after their idolatry, even after the tragedy of the golden calf. Right? God has not totally given up on them. And then the most repeated verse in the Bible. The Lord, the Lord, a God, most, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to third and fourth generation. All right, just slow down for a second here with me. Put yourself in the Israelite shoes. You have just broken the first two commandments within seconds of getting them. How do you expect God to respond? What do you think he's going to do? I remember in elementary school, I think I was in third grade, there was this guy named Garrett, and Garrett had the best toys. Like, seriously. His house was like this monster house. They had an elevator. Like an elevator. <laughs> he always had the best toys. Garrett one day came to school, and he brought a video game that I was, like, really wanted for myself. So when Garrett wasn't looking, I grabbed his video game out of his bag and put it in mine. At some point, I had to leave the room for some reason, and unbeknownst to me, Garrett told the teacher that his video game was missing. While I was gone, the teacher went through every single bag in this room. Teachers are like, yeah, you did, you know. I walked in the room, the teacher was like this, standing over my bag, and I'm like, uh-oh. I wonder in that moment what the Israelites thought God would do when they broke the first two commandments. I know in that moment, I was like, what's going to happen? And as a little third grader, I stole to my heart's content. Right? Then I'm gone. How am I going to be punished? What's going to happen to me? And in that moment, God descends in a cloud. And the first thing he says to Moses is that he is merciful and gracious. Literally, the first thing that God says about himself to describe his character to a people that are obviously not keeping the rules is, hey guys, I'm merciful. 
The second thing he says is he is gracious. And actually, this word has been used earlier in Exodus. There's, in Exodus twenty two twenty seven, 27, when a poor man has no clothes, and God looks down and sees this poor person who doesn't have clothes, he says this, I will hear him, or he will hear him, right? For he is gracious. Right, grace in this instance means when someone is poor and needy and helpless and they cry out to him, he will hear their voice. Right, even when in their ignorance and their disobedience they form a golden calf and worship it in the very moment that God is trying to offer himself to his people and give them a way to live. Next he says he's slow to anger. Right, he abounds in steadfast love. Does God get frustrated? Yeah, he does. Right, because he cares. Right, yeah, he does get angry, but he's slow to angry. It's another way of saying, like, he's patient. He's not like an irritable, punishing parent, which I often think we think of God that way. There's this word in Hebrew called hesed, and it doesn't translate well, so often when you read the Old Testament and you see, like, these sort of, like, weird, hyphenated-ish words, it's like, steadfast love abounding love, enduring love. That is a translation of the word hesed. In our family, uh, we often read this one, uh, we, I don't know, now we have a constellation of them, but this is one of the kids' Bibles that we've read a lot of time. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And they translate hesed this way. It says this, a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. That's how they translate hesed, right? Even when the Israelites have turned to worship metal, even when they have turned away from God in his 40-day absence, right, God doesn't stop loving them. And then in verse 7, you get this contrast between the love of God and the judgment of God. Verse 7, right? Keeping steadfast love, again, hesed, for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children on the third and fourth generation. Now, in pastoral ministry, but also just as an attender of a church, I feel like I have heard Exodus 34-7 referred to a fair amount of times, and this is generally how it goes. Well, see, if, if, someone, if, God, if someone really loves God, what he does is he blesses a thousand generations of their family line from generation to generation. But if someone really messes up, right, four generations get this, like, curse or punishment from God. You ever heard that? No, it's just sort of, like, often in the way we interact with this text. It's interesting, though. If you actually go and look at scholars and the way they engage with this text, you'll notice a couple things. One, in Hebrew... Uh, you'll notice, just even looking at it, thousands doesn't have generations next to it. You notice that? Just in English. Then you read forward and you're like, but third and fourth says generation. But in Hebrew, the word generation is not there. All it says is to the, th to the threes and fours. Hmm, what do we do with that? And actually, when you dive into the Torah a little more, what you'll notice is there's actually textual challenge to this idea of generational sin being passed from one generation to the next. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. 
So in the Torah itself, there's even pushback on this idea of, oh, if you really mess up, your grandchildren are going to pay for it. There's tension within the Torah. So what do we do with this? Well, one way the scholars have sort of talked about this, right? If you take generation out of there, what do you do? Well, one way to approach this is more like saying Exodus 34-7 is emphasizing this contrast between the love and mercy of God and his judgment. And he says, you know, kind of like a scale. If you were going to weight God's love and mercy, it would be weighted in the thousands. But if you're going to weight his judgment on sin, it's weighted in the three to fours. And you see this actual idea of uh, sort of threes and fours as an idiom, like a cultural expression that's used in other places in the Bible. Right? We say if it's raining really loud outside, you say, oh, it's raining cats and dogs. Right? But we don't mean there's like barking water petals or water like coming down from the sky or meowing cats, right? We mean it's raining hard. Threes and fours is an expression that's used in the Old Testament. You go to Proverbs 30. The author of Proverbs says this, right? Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I don't understand. It's an expression of numbers. Amos 1 also says this, right? For three sins and even four, it's an expression that Amos uses regularly in chapter 1. So there's a sense in which threes and fours is maybe not as much about generations as much as it is about a number. And what God is trying to do in this sense is say, my compassion and mercy is weighted in thousands. My judgment, yeah, it's there. Don't forget it, but it's weighted in threes and fours. So if you have a scale, God's love and compassion is 250 times weightier than his judgment. And what's interesting, actually, you know, if you actually go through and see all the quotes of Exodus 34, 6 and 7, 25 out of 27 of those quotes through the Old Testament refer to God's mercy and compassion. Only two talk about his judgment. And I think the biblical authors even in that are saying, yeah, it's there, but it's two out of 27. It's one out of 250. It's four out of 1,000. Now, as modern people, we, we like to pretend like there is no judgment often. We like to ignore sin. We like to ignore evil. That's clearly not what the biblical authors are saying. But if you were in the ancient Near East and you read this text and you saw this profound weight going to God's compassion and mercy and you lived in the ancient Near East, in the ancient world at that time, your jaw would have dropped to the ground because there was no other God that valued mercy like God did, like Yahweh. And the truth is, if you fast forward to the New Testament, we see something similar, right? James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Right? We see this contextually in Exodus 34. The people have worshipped the golden calf. Moses has destroyed the tablets. What happens? God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Right, if there's like a royal rumble, mercy wins 250 times right, for every time the judgment knocks mercy out. Right, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
But this doesn't mean that God doesn't take sin seriously. And I think this is sort of the modern flip, right? We're like, oh, yeah, but then obviously let's just pretend like God doesn't actually care about sin or evil or judgment. Right? And you flip to the New Testament, you see Jesus is constantly welcoming in sinners. And we're like, yes! You know, every other page of the Gospels, you're like, yes! Go, Jesus! But we cannot sidestep the reality that Jesus dies on a cross. He is executed because God takes sin seriously. God could have been like, sin? World? Evil? Sweep it under the rug. But he didn't. He takes sin so seriously that Jesus dies on a cross and that those who receive his forgiveness are welcomed in right to the mercy and compassion, the bent of God towards mercy and compassion. But Jesus has to die on a cross in order for sin to be forgiven. It's actually interesting uh, the one time in the New Testament that Exodus 34, uh, 6 and 7 is quoted is John 1, 14. Now, you might not pick this up, mostly because uh, often New Testament authors are quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament, right? So when the Old Testament is originally written, it's written in Hebrew. But then, right, the Greek world expands, and then eventually, right, they write, write the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and then the New Testament comes around and they start writing in Greek. So what do they quote from? The Greek Old Testament. Now it just so happens that when John writes, John 1.14, he's actually quoting from the Septuagint when he says, right, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the father. And this is the quote, full of grace and truth. So it's not like the New Testament authors are like, oh, he only cares about grace. God cares about truth too. Right? And we see this in the text itself. Think about what God does. He reveals himself to Moses, right? Merciful, compassionate. But then he doesn't just say to them, you know what? Do whatever you want. You got silver? Make a silver calf now. Does he do that? Absolutely not. Just because he is gracious and merciful doesn't mean he doesn't direct his people towards what is true and good. Right? He literally goes over the law a second time. He literally implements these laws so that his people can live according to what is true and good and loving. Right? He cares about how they live. Right? He's full of mercy and grace without ignoring sin and evil and justice, and that we actually, he wants us to live ethical lives. Right? He wants us to love truth as much as we love each other. Right? And Jesus embodies this. The only Son of God comes full of grace and truth. Right? Jesus says, sometimes we imagine Jesus as like, cuddly teddy bear. I remember leading this Bible study and like we actually got into the gospel of Mark. And this person came up to me after like we were about halfway through the gospel and he's like, can I just be honest with you? I'm not sure I really like Jesus. 
Because he's like, you know, I've sing all these songs and I've heard all these sermons and Jesus always seemed really nice. But when I read about him here, he's really intense. And he calls me to more than I could imagine ever offering. Right, Jesus in Matthew 23, he says this to the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who take stuff seriously. He says to us, you guys are blind guides. You clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Jesus isn't this cuddly teddy bear. That's not who God is. Just because we read in Exodus 34 that he's full of grace and compassion doesn't mean he is naive. It doesn't mean that we can like pass it over on him. It doesn't mean that like we can just do whatever we want. I, um, as some of you know, right, God encountered me early in college, and first time I'd ever read the Bible, ever sort of tried to live a spiritual life in any way, and started my sophomore year, and uh, I was in this program, and man, really smart people, at every turn, they were trying to undermine this new faith I had. I remember one night uh, towards winter, I told God before I went to bed, God, like, I think I'm ready to give up. Unless you reveal yourself to me tomorrow, like, I think I'm done. I remember I woke up in the morning. I didn't feel anything. And I went and, like, took a shower, and I tried to sing some Christian songs to, like, trick my psyche into, like, really believing, you know? Didn't work. I had Italian class at 8 a.m., so I walked. Uh, it was, like, across, way across campus, like almost like it was like off our campus and go there, nothing. Study a little Italian. My head is like, what? What's happening? After Italian, I'm like, I guess I'm done. I was about ready. I was, I basically at that point was throwing in the towel, starting to walk back to my dorm. And as I'm walking, I notice I walk to the left and there's a gardener about a hundred yards away that starts sort of following my path. And it's a little awkward. Like I turn to the right and I'm like, you're turning right too. This is a little creepy. And I turn to the left, I like hide behind a tree, whatever, you know. <laughs> and eventually it's like clear, this gardener's coming towards me. This gardener walks up to me, gets right in my face and says, if you follow Jesus, you will live. If you don't, you are already dead and just walks off. God forgives Israel of their sin. They go worship a golden calf. He says, I am gracious. But what is the first thing he does after? These are the laws I want you to live by. That morning, I'm full of doubt. I'm scared. I'm, I'm going to give up. Right? In Exodus 34, it says that God is gracious. But you remember where that comes from? Exodus 22, right? It's this idea of someone is poor and naked and they need clothes. And what do they do? They call out to God and God says, I will hear their cry because I am gracious. That night I called out to God and he was gracious. But he wasn't a cuddly teddy bear. He said to me, follow Jesus and you will live. If not, you are already dead. 
telling you this is serious. Don't mess around. He answered my prayer, but he was directive. He gave me a command. He gave me a way of being. He said, don't forget, this is where life is. As I sort of think about this text and try to imagine, like, so what, is it, what do we do with this text? How do we implement this text in our everyday life? How do we like lean into it? How do we give it teeth, right, in our context? One of the things that's sort of clear to me is that how we think about God affects our discipleship. What we think about God, how we imagine him, shapes what we do in our life with him. Another college story. I, um, when I was in college, right, I, didn't, I never read the Bible. I remember pulling up this, reading the Gospels, and I read this, this one verse from Luke stood out, stood out to me. It was Luke 12, 3. It says, Therefore, you have heard it said in the dark, you have heard said, no, it's your gosh, stumbling here. Okay, therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And I remember reading this, and I had no biblical knowledge. I had no sense of where this fits in, like, the story of salvation history. I didn't understand Jesus' teaching. What I assumed it meant was, if I go into a church, God is going to tell everyone every messed up thing I've ever done. So I didn't go to church. I took this erroneous reading of the scripture, and I was like, I'm not going. Because what did I think about God? My assumption was that God was the kind of being that didn't really care about me. God had like a manual or a procedure for how to initiate new people. And he's like, yeah, we just tell everyone every mean thing you've ever done, shame you publicly, and then you're in. And I was thinking, (laughs) that does not sound very pleasant. Like, I'm out, you know. I'll read the Bible on my own. I'll hang out with some people every so often, but like, I'm not going to church. And what that story reminds me of, though, is how much our beliefs about God shape our life with God. The truth is, I think all of us carry wrong beliefs about God. I think if we're honest, none of us have nailed it 100%. Sometimes we get the balance wrong. Supposed to be weighted in the thousands to the fours, but some of us are more like 500, 500. Some of us are more like 900, you know, 100. Sorry, I'm just trying to get the math right. 904. Um, But some of us really mess up the way we perceive God, and it affects our discipleship. There's this guy named A.W. Tozer, and he wrote this really famous book a while ago called The Knowledge of the Holy. He says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what is, what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image 
of God. In Exodus 34, we see a people that are broken. They've totally failed. Absolutely failed. It's like there's a race, the gun goes off, and they fall on their face. And the first thing God says is, my love and mercy are weighted to the thousands. My judgment to the threes and fours. I guess I just wonder, when you think about God, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Let's just do a little experiment. If you're open. If you're not, just totally ignore me. All right. So if you're open, I just invite you to close your eyes and just take a second and just allow your brain, your mind, your heart, your soul, your spirit, just to allow, what are the first three things you think about God to surface into your brain? Maybe it's a word, maybe it's an image. What comes to mind? I know we could do this a long time. It's going to get awkward. So at some point, I'm just going to sort of bring us back. But, you know, I think this is something you can do in the week. Pay attention to what comes into your mind as you think about who God is. And then maybe even do a little contrast between what comes into your mind and how does it align or not align with how God reveals himself in Exodus 34. I, um, I was recently reminded, Lord be with you. Uh, I, was, I was reminded this week as I was preparing the sermon and I was sort of trying to do this exercise myself of, um, I was on a phone call uh, in the last few months with a family member that I've had massive conflict with and it's really stunk, honestly. I felt very, I was on this phone call, I felt very unheard. I felt really, it was just, it was bad and for the first time in my life, on a phone call, I totally hung up on them. I've never done that. Has anyone else hung up on someone before? Yeah, thank you, I'm not alone. All right, just totally hung up. Within like 30 seconds, I had this overwhelming sense of shame. Of like, I'm a pastor. I am not supposed to be hanging up with people, even if they're rude to me. Like, I should be good at this, you know? And I circled back, right, and apologized. I owned my stuff, right, like at least trying to like do that part well. <laughs> but I had this mental image when I think about that moment of God just sitting there shaking his head at me, kind of disgusted by my behavior. And as I was sort of doing this talk, I realized like, man, all the things I carry in to my discipleship, the way I'm imagining God, and now how that affects my interactions with people. I think it's easy, right, to read this text and be like, oh man, I believe that God is gracious and merciful to Israel thousands of years ago. I believe that God is merciful and gracious to those people. But when it comes to me, I know the depth of my sin. I know the depth of my brokenness. Will he be that way to me? 
how we think about God according to Tozer is the most important thing about us. When you go to seminary, they teach you all these things about God, right? He's omni, right? Omnipresent. He's omnipotent, right? He's omniscient. And yet, none of these words ever actually occur in the Bible. In the Bible, people worship golden calves. And God stays in relationship with them and says, I am merciful and gracious. And then he gives them commands to live by because he cares about sin and evil. He invites them to this process where they are changed and aligned with his kingdom and not their own. I guess practically I was trying to think of like, you know, if you're into Myers-Briggs and you're an SJ, like super practical. If you're like, if you're like me, I'm like high, high N. Anyway, this is like insider language. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, um, I, I like a sermon where it's like someone says something and then I chew on it. But some people like very practical, like, now tell me what to do. So for you, here you go. <laughs> first, like just want to say, right, that exercise we did, what are the first three things that come to mind? Just pay attention. Maybe take some time this week and sit in, what are some of those words that come to mind immediately for you when you think about God? And then contrast it to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Is there congruity or incongruity? Why? Two, I think you could go through Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and pick out what is most intuitive to you in those two lines. Like, oh yeah, I get that God is gracious. Slow to anger though, right? Pick out what is most intuitive and what is hardest for you to grapple with. And then talk with God about it. God, why do I get this part about God, about you? But this part, man, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around. That's another way to apply it. A third way, and this is maybe a little more uh, playful slash experimental slash take more time, but I think it would be an interesting experiment to get like two jars. And over the next month, each day at the end of the day, have like a rock system or, I don't know, a gem or a rice kernel. And just at the end of the day, say like, oh yeah, God, I felt like I... I saw your grace and mercy five times today. I'm going to put it in jar one. God, I was way more attuned to your punishing, worried about my sin side. I'm going to put that into jar two. And then over a month, see what the balance is like. Is it a thousand to four? Or is it more like 50-50? And what does that mean about how you see God? It's a very practical way. You could even do it as a family if you have kids. But it's a way into, what do I do with a message like this? I want to invite the worship team back up. Uh, we're going to dive into um, a couple songs. The first song is a song called This I Believe. And the, the idea right now is we're going to ground ourselves into core, core thoughts, convictions, beliefs of the church over thousands of years. And we're going to reground ourselves, and then we're going to sing about God's faithfulness. So as we go into this song, I just invite you to sing this song like you're singing it with the church that has believed these things for thousands of years. And that's not just about what you believe today, but you're a part of a community, a kingdom 
that is going to be without end. God, I ask in this moment that you would draw near to us just as the cloud descended on Moses as he went up for round two on Mount Sinai. God, would you descend among us? May we have a visible experience of your spirit. God, may we see you and hear your voice. May we see your character for all it is, not just the warped ways that we assume you to be like. God, heal our minds, heal our hearts. God, the ways in which we see you wrongly. God, correct us, align us. God, we wanna be a repentant people, people that turn back to you. Set us free, Jesus, that we may follow you. That we take seriously that when we follow you, we experience life. And apart from you, there is death. God, you are the way to life. Align our hearts and our minds with you and your kingdom.